talk to you about God's pursuit of us. Now, if you're here and you're a Jesus follower, let this be an encouragement to you, but I also want to challenge you that, that, that God's pursuit of us isn't just for us, it's also for the people. But if you're here and you're in any one of our locations and you're not a Jesus follower, someone invited you, someone bribed you, you just walked in thinking, what the heck is going on? Uh, I want you to know that even if you're not pursuing him, thinking about him, you don't want to believe in him, you're not interested in him, maybe even angry at a God you don't even believe exists, God pursues you. It's interesting, I was thinking about this, that as human beings, what drives our motivation to find something? When you lose something, what drives our motivation to find something? Because at the end of the day, we don't pursue things that are not valuable to us. Like if something's invaluable, we don't pursue, like, like for example, recently I was uh, traveling and I had a rental car and I got out of a rental car at the rental return area, which, you know, one of the most stressful things in every airport in the world is trying to find, where do I return the blessed rental car? There have been more than one occasion where I've thought, I'm going to leave it outside the terminal building. But then I thought, someone's going to think it's a car bomb and arrest me, so I didn't do it. But the point is this, you know, once you get through the stress of getting to the rental car return area, I left the car, and as I was walking towards the terminal, I realized I left some money in the car. And I'm walking, and I'm, so my, my body's physically walking away from the car, but my soul is trying to walk back to the car, because I'm trying to figure out, you know, how much money was there and, and how much worth or value does that money have that would cause me to change my direction, to change my priorities, to change my, the order, or, order of what I was going to do in order to retrieve that money? Now, for all of us, if I said that I left 10 cents in the car, would you go back for it? If I said I left one euro in the car, would you go back for it? All the Dutch are going to say yes, 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 yes. But the rest of us... One euro, I mean, come on, be, miss, an air, miss, miss your flight, one euro. If I said 10 euro, would you go back for it? What if I told you I left 100 euro in that car? How many of you going, I can buy three Ryanair flights for 100 euro? You know what I'm saying? I am not leaving without that money. It's so funny how, without even thinking, we're, our subconscious decides and controls the levers of motivation based on what we think is valuable. You know, something about coins and notes, like ones and two euros, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, they're money, but when you lose like, like paper money, like real money, everybody, it's like, man, I don't want to lose that. I mean, if I was walking on the street and I saw a euro, would I stoop down to pick it up? Yeah, probably not. But if I saw a 20 euro, a nice, crisp, unused, extraordinary purpose 20 euro, I mean, I'm inclined to stop. I'm inclined to pick that up. Here's the question I was wrestling with this morning as I was praying for you and for us to church. How much is someone's eternity worth to you? And the reason why I ask that is because, again, even if you're here, you're not Jesus, Father, something in us that witnesses to us that, you know, even after his physical existence that we call life, our spirit endures, our spirit lives on. It's why we talk about our dead loved ones in present tense oftentimes. Because even though we know they're gone, they're still with us. And, and we talk about one day seeing them or them going to a better place. Even, even the most ardent atheists have a theology of heaven. There's like, there's a place we're all going to go and it's going to be positive. And it's also bizarre how everyone gets in because somehow everyone gets to de define the, their own merits and, and uh, standards of salvation. So we all believe this. But, but, but what we don't realize is that, you know, um, regardless of, of whatever, it's a Christian perspective or a secular perspective, we're all going to end up somewhere. And the question is, how much value do we place on the somewhere? For those of us who are Jesus followers, who believe in God's word, I mean, we have a clear message 
of heaven and hell, of consequences for our choices. And as Christians, we should care deeply, not only about our own eternity, not only about the eternity of our children, but we should be the ones, we should be the custodians, the vanguards, the standard bearers. We should be the ones who care about the cause of the eternity of the world. You see, the value of what we lose determines the level of our motivation to pursue it. And in our world, because we're so materialistic and so uh, fleshly and we're so, you know, driven by so many things, we don't put a lot of value on eternal, th- eternal things. But what I, want, what I want to remind you today, if you're a Jesus follower, or, or say to you today as a person maybe is new to faith, that when it comes to our eternity, not just not, God, God, God is very interested in our present life on the earth. And in fact, it could be said that our eternity doesn't begin when we die. Our eternity is already in motion. We're already alive. And, and people mean everything to the Father. And people's life and people's eternal life means everything to the Father. Maybe no one's ever told you before, but you mean everything to the Father. He isn't just some distant, removed God, aloft and aloof, up there moving levers like, like the Wizard of Oz, trying to, trying to make our lives difficult for his pleasure and, try, and, and, and take satisfaction in our favor. No, God loves us. He's a good father. And, he, and even if you leave any one of our environments, Dundalk, Navin, or Dublin, having not changed anything about, about what you believe, know this, God loves you. Your Father in heaven knows you, and he loves you. And you and your eternity mean everything to him. Now, we who are Jesus followers, we, we might describe ourselves as being the found. That we were once lost, and now we're found. And when we're found, when, when our relationship with God is restored, we can experience the love, the safety, the security, the protection, the power, and the provision of having a good and loving father. But what about all those who are lost? What about all those in our world right now, who don't have a relationship with the Father, who don't know the love, safety, security, power, protection, and provision of an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and all-merciful God. One of the ways we describe this is that people who aren't in relationship with God, they're far from God. And when we say they're far from God, we don't mean that they're geographically far from God, like geographically Dublin is different to Navin, and Navin is different to Dundalk. We're not about geographic terms. We're saying spiritually they're far from God. But even when we say far from God, we don't mean that God is distant and God is removed and God's far away. We're told time and time again in God's word that God is near and God is close, that God's knocking on the door, that God, that God is always initiating the first step and wanting to be involved and be in relationship with all people. See, lost people are not lost because God doesn't know where they are. Lost people are lost because they don't know where they are. Think about it. When was the last time you were lost? Or if you're a married person, isn't it strange how it seems like in every marriage, one person is somewhat decent with direction and the other person is, well, let's just say it frankly, not. So in my relationship, I have this really weird sense of direction. If I, if I land in a city the very first time, I just know where north is, south is, east, west. I kind of know from look at the map what the city I, I, I can just figure out in a very strange way where I am. And I'm very confident. Why? Because even though I don't know uh, where I am in terms of like specific directions and so on, I kind of know roughly where I am so I can figure out where I'm going. My wife, on the other hand, she's not here right now because she's lost. She couldn't find church. She's out there doing circles and roundabouts and planning to think, where's church? 
It's so funny. Like last night I got back from, from the conference and I got home and I got to the driver, a car's there. I'm like, oh my gosh, where's my wife? I'm tired. I'm really, are you okay? She's like, yeah, I'm just talking. So I'm like, okay, great. Because she has a terrible sense of direction. It is hilarious. It is, it is, we'll go to the same place a hundred times. I, I'm going to start ranting my wife, so I'm going to stop right now. The point is, whenever you're lost, you're not lost because the world doesn't know where you are, city doesn't know where you are. You're lost because you don't know where you are. And what do we need in that moment? We need help. And you're thinking, man, you know, maybe you discovered this in Ireland, but when you're lost in Ireland, you should never, ever, ever ask anyone for directions. Have you noticed this? Because you're looking for like specific like road sign numbers and you know, all this stuff. We're like, if you go to McCaffrey's pub and take a left, you go by Johnny's tree and you go straight and you see another right, don't take that right, take the right after the right, but be on the left. And there's Mary's well, then the red cottage. And if you go on that brown about twice and go left again, then you'll see this cliff. And you're thinking, what's going on? It's like in our storytelling, we're, we're painting a beautiful picture of Irish topography. You're like, I'm just looking for, is it the R128 or the R1? Where am I going? It's because for years, that's how we did, we did references through places and, and people. And the point is this, when we're lost, what we need is a guide. We need is someone to point the way. And, and God, our Father, knows us because he wired us. And when we think about Jesus, I don't know about you, but I was raised as a, as a Roman Catholic, and so Jesus was like this dude in a statue. And he was always very Swedish-looking, very feminine-looking Jesus in my church, which is always strange for me. And, uh, and he was always sad, which is also very strange for me. And I, I, did not, I could not in any way relate to the way Jesus was portrayed to me. I didn't understand that Jesus wasn't just some religious icon. He was a son of God that came into the world to be a guide to the lost. He said himself, I have come to seek and save the lost. So the question I want to ask is, is, what does God's word say to us about the value of people's eternity? And how should it motivate us as the church to do something about those who are lost? We're going to turn to God's word. We're going to look in the New Testament. We're going to look at Luke's gospel, chapter 15, and verses 1 to 7. All of today's notes are in the Bible app, by U version. If you have the U version app, click on more, click on events, find Lyle's Church, Dublin, Navin, and Dock, and all of today's notes will be there for you. But in Luke chapter 15, uh, 1 to 7, uh, scholars, theologians call this chapter the lost chapter, not because you can't find it, but because in this chapter, Jesus uses three specific metaphors to describe the significance, the importance, the weight, the value that God places on those who are far from him. He talks about lost sheep, a lost coin, and of course, most of us will be aware of the famous story of the lost or prodigal son. But today I want to look at the first portion, which is the, the story, the parable, the metaphor of the lost sheep. We're told in verse 1, Now, the tax collectors and sinners, which are thinking, I thought those were synonyms, uh, tax collectors are sinners, taking our money, anyway, uh, we are, we're, gathered, uh, around, we're gathering around to hear him, that is Jesus. But the Pharisees, these are like the religious elite of the day, and the teachers of the law, that is the Jewish law, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus kind of picking up on this, either hearing or knowing it, tells them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Verse 7, I tell you, watch this, 
And in the same way, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, just setting up here, it's very interesting. Jesus is just doing his thing, moving throughout different towns and villages, just doing his best to, uh, to show people the way to the Father. And what's so interesting about Jesus is that Jesus had this, it's such a, a magnetism that not only was he, was he attracting religious types that we would all expect to follow Jesus, but he was also attracting the irreligious types. Jesus, like Jesus' church was, for, was a church for people who didn't like church. Like he, he attracted not only people who were interested in things of God, interested in religion, but he also had like people who were, who were by, by all standards, supposed to be far from God, rejected by God, disliked by God, not interested in God, and he also had you know, t- political leaders and, and government you know, workers and all these things gathered together. And what's so interesting is that you know, when we read this, we go, well, that's not what I thought church is. I thought church and Jesus only cares about religious people and church people and good people and people who behave and follow the rules and, and pray all the prayers and know all the, all, the, uh, all the movements and all these things. But what we see in the gospel over and over and over again is that Jesus didn't come to conform to the system. Jesus came to break the system. Jesus was the original cultural, spiritual disruptor. He, see, things, if things were working, there would have been no need for Jesus to come. Just like right now. If the world was working, we'd have no need to be talking in church right now. But the world is broken. The world, the world is tearing itself apart. No matter how technologically advanced we get, how much AI we get, how much money, our materialism, our, our, our opportunities to travel and see and create, no matter how much beauty there is in the world, still the world has this inherent hunger, drivenness, drive to tear itself apart. And just like then, the world needs Jesus. And God has not called us, our church, to conform to this culture. He's called us to love the world that we live in. He's called us to love deeply the communities, Navin, Dublin, and Dock, that he's placed us in. But we're called to conform to Christ. If the answer for culture is in culture, then we would have solved all culture's problems. The problem is, is culture right now is, is very much against Things like faith and Jesus and God and against God's word and there's all sorts of reasons for that. But what they don't realize is that they're they're actually rejecting the very thing, the only thing that actually can bring healing to their soul, to their world, and to our communities. We are called as a church to be a kingdom disruptor church. To disrupt the destructive patterns that happen because of sin. And I love it because, you know, I first started ministry... I've told you this before, but when I, when, I first, when I first became a Jesus follower, I would read God's word. I'd be like, man, these Christians are like so radical and so wild and so sacrificial. They're like praying people on the streets and they're selling their homes and they're helping the poor and they're proclaiming the good news and they're moving to other countries and launching churches. Like, man, I cannot wait to meet the church. And then I met the church. And I thought, what the heck is this? I'm reading the word. And I'm seeing the reality and they're not aligning. Like I, I want to give my life to something that has eternal significance. But these people are more consumed with whose favorite song gets played. And I got saved back in the days of Elijah. You know that song, These Are the Days of Elijah? You know, so one of my, one of my so just, just, and maybe you, maybe you relate to this if you're like, because I wasn't raised, you know, as, as a church person, as a Christian. So, so when I first started coming to church, um, sometimes Christian songs make no sense. 
what I'm saying? And when you're not a Christian and everyone else is worshiping, you're like, what the heck is going on here? What are these people doing? So, so it doesn't help when you choose songs that make it even more helpful. So for example, I'm standing there under these are the days of Elijah. And it's like, behold, he comes riding on the clouds. And of course, all I can think is, how does someone ride a cloud? Like, are you surfing the cloud? Are you straddling the cloud? Is it like a motorcycle cloud? Like, how is Jesus riding this cloud? And of course, the verses in court, I'm still like, I'm still like oh my gosh, like, what does this mean? Riding clouds? Are we going to ride clouds? Are clouds here for us too? Is there, we're going to give everyone in the audience a cloud? Like, what's going on? It was just so strange. And I was so disappointed at how petty the people who were supposed to call, who were supposed to carry the name of God were over such stupid things. I love the fact that when I get to talk about our church, just last night we met someone in a restaurant, I was chatting, I was like, listen, our church is for people who don't like church. And if you're a church person, a religious person, you're not going to like our church. Because we, don't, we do things that challenge the narrative. We do things outside the box. We want to be uncategorizable as a church in our culture. We don't want to be boxed in with labels. Why? Because you can't contain the kingdom of God. Jesus came to be a cultural kingdom disruptor. And yet in all that disruption, we see this beautiful tension of how we're always trying to challenge the narratives and the systems and structures, not only of religion, but also of culture. He still was able to be at the same time so present and focused on every individual he came across. Jesus allowed people to belong to him before they believed. Jesus afforded people the grace to belong to his little band of brothers and sisters, his little original community, even though many in the original group didn't even believe him. I mean, one of his best friends sold him into slavery. So, like, literally handed him over to be killed for a couple of shekels of silver. And one of his closest followers, even after he rose dead, still didn't believe that he was the son of God. Jesus allowed people the space of grace to belong. For, but but the, hope, the hope and the, the objective is always that by belonging, people will come to believe. And we want to be a church that allows and affords you the grace of space. That you maybe, maybe you don't, you're not ready to embrace this, open up to this, maybe this is new or challenging. Maybe you're thinking, well, if I don't believe, are you going to label me or judge me or reject me? No, no, no. Understand that in this place is family. One of the reasons why we say falcia valia, or in English, welcome home, is because home is where the family is. You can go to someone's house. When it's not your family, it's their house. When it's your family, it's home. And this church, we, want, we want our church to be a home to people who are lost and searching. It's interesting because whenever you step out and do something like that, whenever we step out and try to be that kind of kingdom-like church, you're always going to get criticism. You're always going to get flack. I remember like years ago when YouTube was still a, a, a device, a program, a platform for watching kittens do cute things. Someone came to our church and didn't like it and so made a YouTube video about me. Don't Google it, please. Uh, you're all like, shh. And it was really hard to watch someone like talk negatively for like half an hour about how terrible I was, how bad our church is. And yet in the discouragement of being like publicly shamed and, and embarrassed, when I really dissected the content of what they're saying, it's like what they're accusing us of is being a church that loves people too much. Being a church that's too welcoming. Being a church that, that, uh, that we're very comfortable with the brokenness of other people and so we afford the grace of space. So in verse 2, it makes sense that we're told that the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered. You gotta love a good muttering, don't you? 
I don't know about what culture you've come from originally, but in Ireland, I think we're master mutterers. I, maybe you, I mean, you, you know this because already you try to talk to Irish people. What are they saying? It's like we're so, we're so good at muttering. It's almost like, it's almost like God, people may not hear, people may hear the words of our mouth and not the words of our heart, but God hears both. And they mutter, this man welcomes sinners and heaps them. I mean, what an accusation. Of all the accusations, that's the kind of accusation I want. Hey, we don't like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus attracted and welcomed sinners. I love this. Why? Because eating together in, in that first century culture wasn't just a practical thing. Like today, you go to a McDonald's or a restaurant. I mean, it's just a practical thing. There's a table, there's chairs. It's a conveyor belt of customers. You gotta, you, know, you gotta flip covers, get more people in, make money. You go to certain cultures in the world, and it's like, it's even that in steroids. Yeah, back then, eating together was a sacred thing. It wasn't just practical. It was personal. But Jesus inviting people who didn't like him and were nothing like him to share a table with him what Jesus was saying is that you can reject me, but I've accepted you. And you can say no to me, but I want to say yes to you. The Pharisees muttered because they were not just white. Because in their, in their complaining is revealed the motivation of heart that they were annoyed that they weren't chosen. Because they thought, hey, we're the ones who follow the rules. We're the ones who go to church. We're the ones that do all the moves. We're the ones that are, that are, that are so hyper-focused and trying to please God. We should be the ones sitting at the table. But in this, we see that religion, religious acts, uh, being, being uh, externally religiously observant, but internally being dead and selfish and sinful, that that's not the currency that buys our way into the presence of God. The reason why Jesus came is because we can't earn a place or we can't rebuild in our own strength the relationship that was broken with our Father. Only Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, God's only Son, can pay the price for that reconnection. See, religion is the idea that God comes to those who deserve Him, those who have earned Him, those who please Him. The gospel, on the other hand, the good news, is the truth that Jesus came for those who could never and will never deserve him. And I want you to know, even if you're not Jesus follower, like that's true of you, but even if you are, we still don't deserve it. Like I am still, 20 years later, following I'm still amazed at the grace of God. You see, the Pharisees, they prioritized a methodology, a system, a, a, a denomination, a brand, a church. But Jesus proclaimed a missiology. He said, I've come into the world to seek and save the lost. The Pharisees were about practice, acts. The Pharisees were against external, you know, they're, they're all for external show, external demonstrations. Again, we need to be careful that in our church, in our three locations, we've got to be careful that we don't, we don't fall into the trap of becoming legalistic, religious, uh, judgmental Christian types. We've got to remember that Jesus said, to him who is forgiven much, he loves much. And the reason why we love so deeply, the reason why the first step is so low, is because let me tell you something, God chose me to lead this thing. And you have no clue. If you knew me like I know me, you'd leave right now. You're like, really? That's the guy in charge? I'm out of here. Because God chose me and I'm the lowest of the lowest, it, it affords me the grace of space to welcome other into the, others into the same grace that I have been given. Yeah, amen. It's worth celebrating. Thank God for low standards. 
The point is, the Pharisees are all about religious practice, but Jesus is all about people. People. And yeah, we got systems, we got, we got connect groups, we're so grateful to have so many people connected in groups. And again, you know, if you're here for the first time, any one of our locations, what we do on a Sunday is just the tip of the iceberg. Like we get to this, this is wonderful, this is great to gather corporate on Sundays, but if you want to really belong and, and connect and know the real heartbeat of who we are as, as a church, you need to find a group. And there are literally so many groups. There's all, there's like coffee groups and there's food groups and barbecue groups and I mean, I, I used to lead a rugby group, and there's CrossFit groups, and you're thinking, well, I'm into whatever it is you're into. Well, you know, come talk. We want to start a group. We want people to live out this faith personally together in community. We've got, we got all sorts of systems. Systems aren't bad. They just have to be placed in a prioritized way. What comes first is people. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And to help the Pharisees see this and to help us, Jesus told them this parable about this fictitious shepherd who had 100 sheep and loses one. Now the word parable is a compound word. It's a Greek word, two compound words put together, parabole. So para is like alongside and the word bole, the verb bole is the word to throw. So a parable is when you take, you're trying to illustrate a truth, trying to get across a point and so you, you tell a story that runs alongside and shows at that point. So Jesus is basically bringing out a metaphor to say, hey, listen, this is, this is how God sees the world. Now, this week we had uh, a good friend of ours, Pastor Andrew McCourt from Bayside Church, uh, at conference speak uh, briefly on this text. And he made the point that as someone who grew up in a town or a city, as someone who's never had to shepherd sheep, take care of sheep, love a sheep, milk a sheep, shear a sheep, I don't want you to do it, sheep, uh, whatever it is you do with sheep, like as someone who's never done that, if, if, if someone entrusted you with a hundred sheep for a day, just all of a, out of the blue, boom, here you are, there's a hundred sheep to take care of, out in the open country, and by the time they came back, you had 99 out of 100 sheep, you'd say, good job. I mean, given the circumstances, that ain't bad. I mean, by human standards, like 99% success is pretty good. And Andrew actually all said, like, if your kids came home and said, hey, I, I just passed my math test, and you go, what did you get? 99%. You wouldn't be like, oh, that's terrible. Like, where's the other 1%? You'd be like, oh my gosh, my son is a genius. It's like, oh my, like, we're going to get my best college right now. He's ready to, to write a book and become the next Jeff Bezos or something. It's like, it's like we would never think in those terms. But God's economy is different to ours. We might dispense people. We might consider the individual value of some less or more than others. But God loves all people. He loves all people. And so in the parable of the shepherd, we see it's not enough to have anything. God wants us all. Now, as a father, I get this because, you know, having four boys, I understand that when we go out sometimes, especially like to uh, supermarkets or shops or if we're traveling to other countries, it's very easy to lose a child. This is the moment you go, yes, I'm with you. Don't leave me here myself. Look like a bad parent, okay? Yes, it's very easy, especially when you have lots of children. The more children you have, the more children you will lose. So imagine with me if we're standing in, say, Super Value, and uh, I said to my wife, hey, uh, where's Isaiah? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, oh man, we lost a child. Now imagine, like, in that scenario, usually we go, oh my gosh, like, let's try to find our son. Imagine though that, that I reacted like, like we react when it comes to the world. And I said, well, you know, I can make more. I'm still in my prime. Three out of four ain't bad. 
we can multiply. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's all good. Like, I mean, like, why, why, would I, why would I leave the comfort of this moment? Why would I give up the choosing of my favorite cereal or my favorite coffee or my favorite type of bread? Isn't it amazing how much bread there is today? Like, back in the day, it was brown and it was white. That was it. Now it's like every time I go to the supermarket, it's like, it's like an existential crisis. Like, I, which, I don't know which bread I want. Which bread wants me? It's like, help me pick a bread. It's so hard. But can you imagine a parent saying, you know, three out of four ain't bad. I remember years ago, myself and my family, this is when I was a child, went on a picnic. And I'm the oldest of four brothers as well. And uh, so my, the guy ne- nearest to me, so second morning, comes and says, hey, let's play hide and seek, let's play hide and seek. And I'm like, I don't want to play, I don't want to play. So he's nagging me. That's always a second born thing, you naggers. You're always nagging people. And so eventually I'm like, you know what, okay, okay, I'll play hide and go seek. I said, you go hide and I'll come seek. And we were like in this, in this open area, miles away from our house. So he went and hid, and I didn't go seek. And 10 minutes went by, and half an hour went by. And like an hour and a half later, as our, my parents were getting ready to leave, they're like, where's your brother? And I'm like, I don't know. And it's like, well, wasn't he with you? No. So we're not playing together. I'm like, oh, yeah, we played hide and go seek. So where is he? Still hiding. At this point, my parents freak out. And for the next two hours, to search all over the area, and they could not find my brother. We had to get in the car, run to the police station, phone this, phone that. Da, 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 da. We're freaking out. Parents are like, obviously very frustrated at me. I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? I mean, he nagged me. He deserved it. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, uh, and eventually we go home that day, and there he was sitting on the back of an ambulance eating an ice cream. He'd walked like 10 miles, some random strangers had knocked the door and said, hi, my name is Rudy and I'm lost. And they're like, okay, like... What else? And somehow he remembered the street that we were on and he brought back. The point is this. My parents weren't in that moment going to go, oh, that's okay. Like, the three of you here, our family name will carry on. Like, like our family seed will exist into the future and, you know, my progeny is, like, secure. It's like losing one child is one child too many. Now, we think of people like we think of stuff. Like we think of, like, objects. But when God looks at the world, when God looks at you and me, he sees us as we see our children. One lost child is one child too many. And what Jesus is saying to us as his people is that if we're going to be his people, if we're going to be Jesus' followers, we need to follow, not only in Jesus' example, living in our Christian character, we need to follow in Jesus' devotion, his determination, his, sacri- his giving up of his, sac- of his life sacrificially to seek and save those who are And again, many people may not want to be saved. That's okay. I mean, the whole reason why our church is called Lighthouse is because many, many years ago, when we were thinking about what does one name a church, it's not a great conversation to have yourself, what do you even call a church? And so I made the mistake of asking people, hey, let's, let's do like a group think. What do, you, you, what do you guys think we should call this church? And of course, there was some of the worst names you've ever heard in history. Crazy names. Like, I won't even tell you what kind of names are. They're really bad. And so I was like, okay, this is not going to be something that we can solve ourselves. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to pray. And so we started praying. And one day as I was praying, God, give me this vision. And at first I thought maybe it was like a, a, an inspirational thing for a message. But as I, was, as I was seeing this in my mind's eye, like I wasn't like on drugs or taking mushrooms or anything. Like I, was, I was just praying. And, uh, but I can see this vision unfolding. I realized, no, this is something more. And so in this vision, I see this, I see this like, uh, like you, know, you guys know the west coast of Ireland. It's rugged, it's beautiful. Do you ever go to the west coast, like in December, when the waves are massive and rain, I mean, rain, September, December, I mean, every year, month of year is rain. 
That's not really accurate in terms of time and date. But when you go to the West Coast, like in the winter when it's stormy, it's, it's ferocious. It's dangerous. People get killed all the time over there. They're going to stand on the cliff, take a photo, boom, they're dead. Don't do that. And uh, so, so I had this vision, like this, this, like this, this place, it was like the West Coast, and these massive waves are crashing off the, off the rocks, and, and it's rainy, and it's windy, and, and I look out, and I see all these hands coming out of the water. Just hands, 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 like thousands and thousands of hands. I thought, oh my gosh, people are drowning. And in my, in my, in my spirit, I'm like, well, who's going to do something about that? And I felt so much ho- hopelessness and desperation for those people. And all of a sudden, I see this light just go bang over the water. This boom, boom. And in this vision, I turn around and I see this lighthouse standing defiantly against the edge of chaos in the darkness, shining this light of hope and life and love and liberty out into this darkness. And then it's almost like in this vision, I look and I see the little door that's in the bottom of the house, and all these people come out into the storm. And I start putting these little, we call them kuroks in Irish, these little wooden boats. And I start pushing these boats out into the water. And these crazy people are leaving the safety and the security and the warmth of their beautiful lives. And they're rowing out into these waves. And like, what's going on? And all of a sudden, they're reaching for people. And some people were so grateful to be saved. And others are slapping their hands away saying, no, I'll do it my way. So funny how in every Irish funeral in the world, we play Frank Sinatra's I'll do it my way. Maybe your way isn't the best way. Maybe drowning your life, your marriage, your kids, your soul, your godly friendships. Maybe it's not a good plan. And all of a sudden, people were brought back and rescued. And I knew in that moment that God wasn't just giving me a, a, a point for a sermon. God was telling us, this will be the identity of your church. You're called to be a spiritual lighthouse that stands defiantly in a very anti-church culture and bravely and boldly proclaims that Jesus is the light of life. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only true liberator and he's the only hope for humanity. What's so amazing is all these years later, three locations to see so many of you that that, I didn't know you, you didn't know me, but you were, you are the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus says that we should be, not just, our, not just a church, but individually we should be at lighthouse to the world that we live in. He finishes in verse 7 and says, I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What he's saying is all heaven breaks loose. We know the expression, all hell breaks loose. Well, all heaven breaks loose when the lost are found. Many things please the heart of the Father, but nothing can bring honor and glory and worship to the heart of our Father than seeing his sons and daughters be welcomed home. Someone told me years ago, a mentor of mine said, the best way to show love to someone you love is love those they love. I'll say it again. The best way to show love to those you love is to love those they love. It's nice. People do nice things for me, but it really moves me when they do nice things for my kids, nice things for my wife. Because I love them. I want the best for them. And when I see people show me love by loving those I love, that is the best love. How do we show our love to the Father? What does the Father love? The Father loves people. The Father loves all of you. Listen to me carefully. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or where you've come from. It doesn't matter how broken, how lost, how angry, how hurt, how, how much you disbelieve in the person of God. God loves you. You think, 
How could God love me? And that was my tension. Like as I began, when I first heard this message, this gospel message of God loving me, having a plan for life, of course I immediately and viscerally and aggressively and antagonistically rejected it as complete nonsense, hiding behind this fake facade of science and secularism, but deep down wondering, could it be true? And what was so interesting is as I opened my heart to the possibility that maybe God did love me, it was like, okay, maybe he could... I can maybe get my head around that, but I couldn't understand or accept or believe that he would. Maybe he has the capacity to love me, but if you knew me, you would know nobody can love me. I don't even love myself. In fact, in my, in my, where I grew up, in the room I had, I grew up in, I had this huge poster on the ceiling. It was huge. And it was a poster of Kurt Cobain, the lead singer of Nirvana. And the quote on the poster was, I hate myself. And I want to die. Every single night of my teenage life, that was the last thing I looked at before I eventually nodded off to sleep. And I can remember in my frustration, my brokenness at home, my parents, with friends, relations, I remember cr crying out to nothing, to a ceiling. I said, if someone's out there, man, do something. Because if you don't, I'm done. I'm not going to be able to sustain this life much longer. And when someone came and said, you know, there's a father in heaven knows you and created you for extraordinary purpose and loves you. I'm like, no, no, no. Like maybe there is a father and maybe he loves you, but he can't love me. And when I, you guys know the story, when I, in Heidelberg, Germany, 20 years ago this year, prayed a half-hearted prayer, a metaphorical Hail Mary, to a God I didn't even believe existed, fully expecting nothing to happen, and God's presence filled that room, it wrecked me. It ruined me. It transformed my life. And God did so much in me, changing me, healing me, just, just all this stuff, that when it came time for me to decide, what would I do with the rest of my life? I'm, I'm like, listen, I, I can't think of any higher calling than helping everyone I know to experience God's love and redemption like I have. Someone's eternity is worth everything to God. And it should be for us too. Not just us for ourselves, but us for others. God has created many beautiful things in the world. Mountains, valleys, rivers, oceans, space. You know, the non-observable sciences of microscience. I mean, God, God, the world is just such a beautiful place with so much depth and so many beautiful things to study and look at and learn. So many of us have devoted our lives and our fields to, to those very things. But the most powerful, most beautiful, most perfect thing that God created was humanity. And maybe like me, you didn't grow up being good at stuff as a kid. You weren't necessarily the best at sport or the best in school or the most popular person in the group. But when it comes to God's eyes, you are the MVP. You are the most valuable person in his eyes. You may say, you know what? I'm lost. You guys, you guys are fine. You guys are good. But God says, no, nobody is left behind. God has called us as Lighthouse Church to be a church like Jesus that seeks and saves those that are far from. You may think, well, I'm not worth saving. Well, as I get ready to pray, let me ask you a question. You've seen this note earlier that I used, yeah? It's real. It ain't monopoly money, people. How much is that note worth? How much? Some of you are sitting nervous. It's not a trick question. It's 20 euro. It's worth 20 euro. Okay. If I took this note and crinkle it up like that, 
So it's like not crisp anymore and it's all nasty and stuff. How much is that note worth? Okay, if I put this note, so last night I get home from, this true story, just be full disclosure, I get home from conference and Lud's like, your feet stink. I'm like, get thee behind me, Satan. She's like, you got to go wash feet. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to wash feet. It's like a recurrent thing in our marriage. I'm like, why did I marry this woman? Seriously, if I knew that for the rest of my life, I'd be perpetually watching you, watching my feet. Didn't you read the Bible? woman? Jesus washed people's feet. You should wash my feet. I'm only joking. Don't tell her I said that. So, um, so you know, it's like, it's like if I put this note in my sock right now and got those lo- the lovely dead skin from the bottom of my foot all over it, if I put it under my armpit, you know, get some of that manly masculine body odor. People say, what's the scent you're wearing? I'm like, it's masculinity. It's just sweat. If I did all those nasty things, how much would this note still be worth? No matter what this note goes through, no matter how it's mishandled, misused, abused, beaten up, torn, no matter what's put on it, no matter, no matter what it's used for, this note will always be worth 20 euro. Maybe you think, man, that's my life right now. I've been beaten up, torn down, used and abused, disregarded, discarded. My life is worth nothing. What Jesus wants you to see is that he's pursuing you because in his eyes, you are worth everything. I'm saying to us as the church, as Lighthouse Church, this is our identity. It isn't something that we do. This is who we are. We are to be a lighthouse to the world. I'm going to do lots of great things as a church, but the greatest privilege we have is being people who welcome lost sons and daughters home to the Father. And my heartbeat and my passion and my dream is that as we live out life and we get to you know, live in community and do small groups and do all these cool things and we got Christmas, the movies come up in the Christmas and all I mean, we get to do all these things that we will always keep our eye on the main thing. And the main thing is this. For God so loved the world, come on, I mentioned last week, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, I love that, whoever, whosoever, whoever, believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal.